You need a DRI. You need to, to start to define roles and responsibilities. And, and that's where on the smart side, you need to you need to turn it into a project. And it and that means and for for me and, and what I've communicated with my organization, that means certain things. There's 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 a formula to a project. And if you and the formula has certain ingredients and you have to have all of the ingredients. If you're missing any of the ingredients, you know, it's like baking a cake. There's some fundamental ingredients that have to be in there, sugar, milk. Uh, flour, and then and then you can add other stuff. Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, we've got Dave Scott, CEO of Hyperfine. Dave, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. Great to be on your show. So when I heard about like the genuine breakthroughs that you guys have been making with your medical equipment, I, I definitely wanted to have you guys on. Can you explain to people both what the product is and, you know, how it's 10 times lighter, like the drastic changes that you guys have made? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's 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 one of these disruptive innovation stories. About eight years ago, the team at Hyperfine had the vision that with the advancements in electronics, in computing power, and the ability to do machine learning and artificial intelligence software algorithms to re-render these images, that it was going to be possible to take a very large, expensive MRI machine and shrink it down so that it was portable, it could roll on wheels, roll through a doorway, and and plug into a normal wall outlet. And so, you know, it it really took approaching it with a blank piece of paper and uh, approaching the pop problem from scratch and from first principles. So, you know, there's not like one thing that was the breakthrough. It's a bunch of, of things all throughout the entire system design, but a fundamentally different kind of approach. You know, a, a high field MRI scanner, the kind you find in the basement of a hospital, those are two, three million dollars, huge piece of equipment. You also have to build a facility. You have to, you know, concrete room with shielding. Those are superconducting magnets. So they're powered with electricity and then they require cooling systems. So the, the biggest difference is in the magnets. We use permanent magnets or ba- basically refrigerator magnets. Um, and, and so that allows us to avoid all of that complexity that you have with a, with a high field. It's almost like going from a gas car to an electric car, you know, it's just fundamentally different, but it does, because you're approaching it differently, it's different engineering, different physics and different set of problems. And so the, the team solved a bunch of great problems, noise, noise cancellation, improving the image quality through software and machine learning. And yeah, we have a system now that's a order of magnitude cheaper and and can roll through a doorway and, and plug into a normal wall outlet uses about the same, you know, same power as a coffee maker. And so That's it's incredible. a like, huge breakthrough. Can you can you tell everyone what we were talking about before we started recording about the benefit for these kids that have to get so many scans over the years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the there's there's many different use cases for a bedside MRI, right? That today MRI is is a, a tremendous imaging modality that's used around the world. Unfortunately, only about uh, 10% of the world's population has has access to MRI. And even in the United States where, you know, there, there is uh, tremendous technology available and MRIs are everywhere, there's still a shortage of, of access to MRI. And imagine a, a patient who's in the ICU or the emergency department and they need to be moved to the MRI suite. Well, that MRI may or may not be in the same building as that patient. So it's very complicated to move them. In the, in the case 
of pediatrics in children, there's a condition called hydrocephalus. These kids are diagnosed with this condition, and it can happen to adults as well. And so the treatment pathway for these kids is they have to have a shunt placed in their, in their brain and a tube, a drainage tube to drain the fluid from their brain. And they have to have scans done really every year to check on that. And sometimes that tubing can get clogged. The kids end up with headaches and nausea. And if, it, if it's not treated, it could be fatal. And so they get scanned on some regular basis or in some cases in an emergent situation. And, and today, because MRI, even in the United States, MRI is just not that accessible. You bring your child in. Let's say they have a headache. They're feeling nauseous. You don't know what's wrong. So they want to get an MRI scan, but that MRI is either fully booked and or it's maybe across town. It's too difficult to get access to. So they're scanning these kids with us with the next best thing, which is a CT scan, which is X-ray. It's radiation. And the data is coming out now that's showing, you know, these kids are getting anywhere up to 50 CT scans before they turn 18 years old. And these kids are ending up with brain tumors. There's a quote, a great quote from a family that really is poignant and 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 spells out the, the challenge of this, which is, you know, it was bad enough that our child child had hydrocephalus, but now we're just waiting on a, a brain tumor diagnosis. And so it, it's just an, just an awful thing. And so we're working with min, many uh, pediatricians and uh, pediatric associations across the country to really re- replace CT and, and use a bedside MRI, which is our salute to image these kids with MRI, which is completely safe, no radiation. And it's really the modality that would be preferred in the first place. And that's such great. If that was the whole story, this that would be great news, right? Yeah. Um, and hydrocephalus is an, you know, an even bigger problem outside of the U.S. I mean, it's it, the incidence is in the U.S. is not not that large, but but outside the U.S. and in African countries throughout Asia, hydrocephalus is a bigger problem. And, and you know, once a, a facility has a system like this, of course, it can be used not just for hydrocephalus, but for many, many brain conditions. Everything from just a child or, or a person shows up in the hospital and they have a headache and you don't know what's going on. Could it be a stroke? Could it be a brain tumor or some other condition? Many of these locations, as I mentioned, just have no access to MRI. So to be able to triage those people early on is a solution that's just simply not available today. That's incredible work you guys are doing. You know, when your PR team reached out and we were, we were learning about what you've done, I couldn't help but think of analogies to the computer world of like, you know, my grandpa's age, they took up a whole they took up a whole building and they could do hardly anything and they were absurdly expensive. And, you know, now my kids buy a Chromebook for 120 bucks or something, you know. So you think about this, like MRI in a basement is two, three million dollars. And, and what do one of your portable units cost? $250,000. That's incredible. Right? Yeah, an order, order of magnitude cheaper. And then again, takes up a whole room, is inconvenient. Like how much do one of those in a basement weigh? How much does it weigh? Does it yeah. weigh? Oh, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, probably a ton, you know, several thousand pounds once it's all installed not you know obviously not portable i mean you know they they do put mris in big semi trucks and but then they they have to park the semi truck so it's not not at that point it's not that portable so what do yours weigh oh it's uh several hundred pounds yeah so yeah again order of magnitude lower weight no you're exactly right i mean it's like going from ibm mainframes and you know punch cards and lots of highly trained people to be able to use it to you know a a laptop in on your 
desk. And and that was the vision. That was the, you know, the vision was that all of these technologies are converging over time. You know, electronics are getting smaller and cheaper. Computing power is getting more and more powerful. And then cloud computing and machine learning to be able to really reconstruct these images in a way that's never been done before. And when you converge all of these things together, you know, the time had come to be able to really shrink that giant MRI machine down to something that could be portable and roll through a doorway. And we're working on our next, our current generation system images the brain. And our next generation system, we are expanding that to be able to image the upper spine as well as extremities like feet, ankles, uh, knees, things like that. Uh, diabetic foot in, in the U.S. especially is a, is a big problem. And so similar to similar to uh, imaging with CT or uh, other modalities, MRI is the preferred modality, but it, the accessibility is not there just because of the backlog and the uh, difficulty to access in the you know basement of these hospitals and getting patients to those locations. You know, our vision is that there's an MRI machine in every emergency room, in every ICU, in every urgent care center so that you can uh, easily get access to the, the imaging modality that's needed for the diagnosis. Of, of something like foot disease or foot disorder, diabetic. So maybe shifting gears here for just a second. From your background, can you talk just a little bit about what you did with Google and and like maybe what some of the the best lessons were from your background to to come lead the team that's accomplished so much? Yeah, yeah. Uh, prior just prior to joining Hyperfine, I was with Apple developing a kind of a new platform of technologies and and products there. And then prior to that, I was with uh, a company called Verb Surgical, which is a joint venture between Google. Google and J&J. So it was the mission, our vision was to create a, a surgical rope that ultimately J&J would, would commercialize. And so J&J acquired that joint venture and they are hard at work to deliver that technology commercially. You know, it's, it's really some, I mean, amazing lessons getting to see kind of how Google works. You know, they're big on the OKR process if, if you're familiar with OKRs. So I have uh, very much, I had been using that prior to coming to Google, but that just reinforced kind of that process and that methodology and refined that. So I, I really implement that, you know, at, at, at Typerfine today. Go ahead. Well, so I think a lot of us have read the John Dewar book about. Yeah. About the, you know, and, but not as many of us have experienced somebody who's good at it. You know, can you talk about this idea of objectives and key results and, and in your mind, why it's a competitive advantage? Yeah. I mean. This is, you know, I'm really, it's kind of a, kind of a funny subject to be passionate about, but I'm really passionate about, you know, John's famous quote is ideas are, ideas are precious, but execution is everything. And, and that's really true. I mean, all through my career, I've never been anywhere where there was a shortage of ideas. There's always, there's always too, too many ideas and not enough time and people and resources to actually execute those ideas well. So the problem is not ideas. The problem is execution. And and no one, you know, n- none of us get trained on execution, right? There's no college class on, class on how to how to uh, build a company, how to execute, what does execution even mean? And and when I, you know, I've been kind of collecting these things over the years at different companies I've been at, Intuitive Surgical, amazing, amazing company at execution, Apple, amazing company execution, Google, amazing. And it's none of it is, it, none of it is like, you know, some magic, like, secret thing that you when you hear it, you're like, oh, my, I can't believe that. I always describe it to people as look what I'm going to tell you. It's like eating your broccoli and going to the gym. You know, 
there's no magic there. It's like, oh yeah, of course, right? We should ex- we should exercise and we should eat healthy. The the challenge is in the execution, right? The challenge is in the discipline. And so the trick is putting in place the frameworks that are easy enough to do, but then doing them on a regular, with a regular cadence and building the muscle over time. You know, you don't go to the gym just once and then look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? You, you need to go again and again and again. And, and so building that, that infrastructure and those processes and putting those things in place and then supporting the teams in a way so that the creative energy and the innovation energy can continue to flourish, but within this this structure of setting goals and milestones, you know, there really is a magic in writing down your goals and your milestones and, and, but being specific about it, you know, what am I going to achieve? When am I going to achieve it? Who's, who's the responsible person? What's the date? And then just building the muscle in the organization of doing that on a very regular basis. And and with OKRs, it's typically quarterly. And that's where many companies break down. They'll do it once. They don't really do it very thoroughly. Maybe a handful of people do it, but not everybody does it. And it has to be done all the way, you know, from the CEO all the way down to every individual in the organization for it to be effective. And then doing that every quarterly, every quarter and, and building that muscle until it, it becomes part of the culture and part of the vernacular. People are starting to use the language of it and weaving that with strategic, inter, interweaving that with strategic processes. And so, you know, there's really kind of a playbook around this. One of these days I'll write a book on it, but there's really a playbook around around this, that if you put these elements in place, and of course it starts with, it starts with, you know, Jim Collins' uh, famous quote of getting the right people on the bus and in the right seats. You know, you have to, you do have to have that first and foremost, hire, hire great talent and make sure that the org is structured. The organization is structured to solve the problems that you're, that you're going after and then put in place these types of execution processes and the organization will, it, it, it will naturally take on a cadence to, and you'll start to see things happen over time. But so many companies don't, you know, it's kind of amazing, you know, that they're, they're so focused on like, oh, how do we innovate? How do we come up with new ideas? And in my experience, the problem is not that. The problem is there's lots of innovative ideas. There's just even, even in areas where they've created research groups, many times research groups can tend to kind of spin and churn a lot and not produce results. And it's, uh, and again, it's because they're not uh, structuring themselves to deliver against goals. And and so you have to carry the right balance, but you don't want to overstructure things and constrain the thinking. But if you don't do some amount of this, then, then there's a lot of churn. And, you know, you're trying to drive clarity, alignment, and accountability. And because there can never be enough clarity. And so through this process, it, it really creates that. So we've got a lot of CEOs that listen to the show, startup founders, stuff like this. If they had to pitch their team on what doing OKRs actually is, right? What what's your short version of what's your short version of what that actually looks like? You mean what what is it? What does it mean to to do OKRs? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if we're so, going to start running this organization off OKRs. Yeah, what, what's like the just trying to give people a quick vision of what does that mean? We do day to day. Yeah, I so what you know when I joined and I've done this at a few different places where I've come in and and they didn't they didn't exist. So when I came into Hyperfine, they weren't doing any form of this. They they had some goals and milestones, but it was more loose loosely uh, structured. <laughs> and 
So I think the first and foremost thing is, and you know, is really use the mental model of like going to the gym. You know, it it it, it is a muscle building process. You're not going to you're not going to go to the gym once, and so don't expect don't expect perfection after doing like one cycle of this. But it starts with you know cl- giving them clarity of of the framework. So, you know, create a framework for what it should look like. Don't, you know, you don't want them thinking about the template. You know, you don't want 20 different frameworks out there, one simple framework. And then what I did is I had the team from the, from the leadership team through every single individual build out a set of objectives and key results for the 90 day period, the quarter and write those down. And of course, that first round, it's not, you know, it, it's, there's a variety of, of, let's say, quality in that. <laughs> some people did it thoroughly, some people not so thoroughly, just like, you know, just like any of us going to the gym. Some days we go and, you know, it, we, we work out really hard and some days we, we kind of, you know, putts around a little bit more. And, and, but just having the patience to say, okay, that's, you know, that's great. Now, what, how, how can we improve? A little bit, you know, one thing that we're really focused on is just improving 1% every day. Just how do we get a little bit better every day? And so, you know, the next quarter we did this, we looked at ways to get a little bit better and to coach everyone how to make it a little bit better. And the process is you have the team go and give them a two-week period to develop this. Then you have a review cycle over about a week where the organization and the managers review their OKRs with their teams and try to drive you know, drive the quality, make improvements in that. And they're, they're all written down. We use, you know, we use Google Suite. So they're all in Google Slides so, and they're shared. So every single person in the organization can see everyone else's. The other advice I would have is, you know, there are, there are a few tools popping up to, to, that are built to create OKRs and they're kind of built for this. And, and John would probably hate me for saying this, but because I know he's backing one of the companies that's developing one of these tools, but I've tried these before and, and with an organization. And the challenge is you don't want the tool to get in the way of the content. And giving a team one more thing that they have to sign into and one more tool for them to, you know, they're already in Salesforce. They're already having to sign into G Suite and Gmail, having to sign into these, all these different logins. And so, you know, step one is don't worry about the tool. Just use something simple like PowerPoint slides or or Google slides, get the content. And then over time, if it's appropriate, you can, could move to a tool because the tool can just kind of tend to complicate it. And then every quarter, there's a cycle, you know, a few weeks before the quarter, it's time to develop the next quarter OKRs, review those OKRs at the beginning of the quarter, lock them down, publish it to the whole company. We hold we, we hold a, an all hands every week. And that's something that I, I borrowed from, from, we borrowed from Google. You know, Larry and Sergey would hold a, a, an all hands kind of a stand up every week. And it's just very casual, you know, whatever content might be available for that week. We introduce new employees. We talk, make any announcements that are important to the company. And we have some presentation from some department, whether it's marketing or, or the clinical team or the regulatory team, present on some topic. We do some cute completely transparent Q&A. Anybody can ask anything. We have a weekly quiz where <laughs> we ask like quiz questions about the company, the product, the customers, you know, just to kind of get people interested and excited. And it, and it's great. And it's a great, and we also review 
the objectives in that in that as well, the high level ones. And so it's just a constant frequency of reminding the team, hey, where are we going? What are, what's important? What are we focused on? And and just building that muscle and then doing that every, each each quarter so that each quarter gets a little bit better and a little bit better until eventually even those folks that were at the beginning, maybe not doing not doing them so well are actually now doing them quite well. And because also there's a language around it. We use a, we use a, you know, DRI, directly responsible individual who's every, every key result should have a DRI that, you know, you don't have three people assigned to a project to be the leader. There's one person that's the lead. And that's another mistake. Many companies, you know, many organizations, they, they lack, there's lack of clarity in what the, what the goals are. There's a lack of clarity of who's accountable to the goals. And there's a lack of clarity of when those things are due. And so driving that clarity throughout the organization so that uh, you're just shining a flashlight on things all the time. And then each quarter, you just keep doing that and repeating that. And you don't also, the other critical thing is you don't crucify people for when when they miss a goal. That You know, we do not tie our OKRs. And, and again, Google's the same way. Don't You don't directly tie OKRs to per, to the performance bonus payouts. They're, they're loosely tied in the sense that, you know, did, you know, if you're performing, you're hitting, you know, you're hitting 70, 80% of your OKR, but there's no like mathematical. It's not like, okay, if I got 70% in my OKRs and I get 70%, there's no mathematical tie. And that's an important thing because if you do that, people get scared and then they start sandbagging the OKRs and and you don't want that either. So you want the OKRs to have some amount of, of, of stretch in that, you know, you want people stretching and pushing. So I've just found them to be an incredible uh, tool to create this clarity that's needed in this alignment. And it could be used in any type of organization, a highly researched research focused endeavor where, you know, you're still at the basic science research phase all the way to, you know, launching the product and, and, and getting alignment around the product. And, and it's great to just drive alignment across teams and, and create, create the right kind of clarity and, and focus and teamwork. Oh, that's great. I can tell you're passionate about it. And I like that though, because you're right. It does sound like in many ways, it does sound like you brought the way go to the gym, right? Yeah. And yet I can tell that for you, it's like, yeah, but we actually did it. So it worked. <laughs> right. How, how many, how big is the staff at Hyperfine? We are close to, we're right around 200 people right now. Okay. When you think about consistency and having this not be flavor of the month and having this like something that actually gets done, like ideas come to mind for me of like, not only what gets measured gets done, but what gets scheduled gets done. Like, is, is, yeah. is it on people's calendar? What other tips would you have for people who are like, they're listening today and they're like, ah, we got to do that. I know those are basics, but we're not actually doing it at our firm. We have, yeah. we should start doing this. And then they go, yeah, but why start it? You know, all the times we do things like this, it seems to fade away. When you think about a piece of advice for a leader today of like, not only how could you start, but what can be done so that this does become like just how we do things around here. And, you know, doing the OKRs is the default instead of the heavy lift. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's, well, there's two things that there, there's two big categories. I'm, I'm going to break it down into, into smart and healthy. So every company focuses all its energy on doing the smart things, you know, you know, financial systems, financial tracking, you know, putting in Salesforce so that you're tracking your customers and, you know, your payment systems. OKRs is, is, is in the category of doing smart things. Healthy, but, but company, many organizations and many leaders don't put enough focus or energy on on how to create a, the healthy side of the company and what what is healthy healthy is you know low politics 
clear communication, transparency, no, no silent, what I call no silent disagreement, you know, no, no meetings outside the meetings and, and really creating a culture of, of trust. And so the, you know, at the highest level, a leader in, in my opinion, needs to think about their job is, is these two things. How do I put in place the right smart processes, right? Smart systems so that we're executing well, but a company can be executing, but if they're not healthy, that won't be sustainable because there'll be, you know, politics and backstabbing and, and backroom conversations. So at the same time, they also need to be really working on the healthy side, the building the culture. And that's about, you know, what I've found to be most effective is uh, kind of building it from a vulnerability-based trust perspective. So being willing to, to create and foster environments where people are willing to share themselves, their, their, their personal life, to build that trust from a very personal level. And once you've established that level of trust, then you can, you, it creates a culture of candor, a culture where people are willing to say what they, they think. They're not going to have that backroom conversation because they were able to say it in the meeting. If they're able to speak their mind and say what they, if they're able to have that trust, then they're able to speak their mind. If they're able to speak their mind, then they're able to, and they're willing to be accountable for the decisions that are made because they've been able to voice, you know, they may not agree with the final decision, but they've at least had a chance to voice their concern. And if they trust the room and they trust others, then they can behind it and, and get it, become accountable for it. And if they have accountability, they can also have alignment. And so they're aligned to the direction, the common direction of everyone. They can take that alignment to their teams and execute and ultimately deliver the results that they're going after. And so it's all based on on trust. So if you don't have that trust, that cultural trust, and I've stepped in organizations where it's been toxic, right, where the, the trust has been broken, everyone's defensive with each other, and you can see that whole, all those elements break down. There's, there's no candor. They're not saying what they really think. They come outside the room and they tell you, oh, well, that was a stupid idea by John because blah, blah, blah. It's like, why didn't you bring it up in there? Oh, well, they wouldn't understand. You know, and so you have to break down those walls. And so if I were to coach a, a you know, a new entrepreneur in a company, I would, you know, want to walk them through the playbook of how to build in the execution side of the business and walk them through the playbook of how to build the, the, the healthy culture side of the business. And it really takes both elements. And if you can do that simultaneously, then you can build a great company. And, and the great companies that I've been at are, have done both of these really well. Again, I'll name, you know, naming off intuitive Google and Apple to name a few. They were just tremendous at both of those aspects. Well, I know we're kind of winding down for part one of the interview. Maybe a final question for me on this. I'm interested in the balance beam of, you know, when you're you're trying to be inclusive, you're trying to let everyone be part of the team, be part of the conversation. When you think about helping people recognize their roles of like, there's some folks in this conversation that are a subject matter expert and there's yep. somebody that's the intern or there's somebody that it is doesn't have the same background. And so I, I'm interested in any advice for navigating the conversation when you want everybody to be important, you want everybody to feel included, and you want to be honest about some people, some people's opinions here are going to be based on experience and other people's are just going to be opinions and we're going to wait. You know, it's not necessarily a democracy because not everybody's bringing the same thing to the table. Can you talk yeah. about navigating that? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a few things there. One is gets back to the the smart side, which is, you know, if you it let's if you're using your example, let's say there's a project that and there's a and and you know, many times a project 
kind of kicks up organically and the team members kind of j- get into it organically. Well, at some point you need a DRI. You, know, you need a DRI. You need to, to start to define roles and responsibilities and and that's where on the smart side you need to you need to turn it into a project and it and that means and for for me and and what I've communicated with my organization that means certain things. There's 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 a formula to a project, and if you and the formula has certain ingredients, and you have to have all of the ingredients. If you're missing any of the ingredients, you know it's like baking a cake. There's some fundamental ingredients that have to be in there: sugar, milk, uh, flour, and then and then you could add other stuff, chocolate or coconuts or whatever. But if you're missing flat, if you're missing the fundamental ingredients, you're not going to end up with a cake. And so every project, everything we do is project focused, and it has these fundamental ingredients. You know, what are the project pillars? Who's the DRI? Who who are the team members? And to your now to your point, and clearly defining roles and responsibilities for each team member. What's in scope and out of scope of the project? What's the project plan? And then out of the project plan falls OKRs, goals and milestones, you know, tied to dates and deliverables, and then tracking risks, risks and mitigations. And so that's part one is you at some point you need to go from organic into defining a project, which defining roles and responsibilities. And not everybody's going to be on the team. So at that point, some of those people that are maybe highly interested, but they're not able to contribute because that's not in their skill set, that's they're just not on the team. But now now this gets to this, the healthy side. If you have a, a healthy culture that where people trust each other at a personal level, then those people, they may not wait. They may they may feel a little left out, but because there's a fundamental level of trust and, and cultural trust, they're okay, and they know that there's going to be another project for them where they're going to be able to contribute. Um, and so, you know, again, you have to have both both pieces because if you don't have the healthy side, and then there's this just trust, then that person can, you know, and there's a culture of backstabbing and backroom talking. That person's going to go off and then, you know, talk badly about those team members and do that whole thing. So at at that, and that's a kind of a generic answer I gave you, but that at the high level, that's how you try to create that culture so that it permeates through the org and you and you do that over time and building the muscle. And of course, then it takes training of the managers to handle those conversations in the right way. But again, leading with leading with vulnerability, trust, so that those managers are compassionate to what those people are, you know, going through and dealing with. I mean, people are, you know, people are spending the majority of their life working for a company and and they do need to find ways to to plug in and feel tuned in and turned on. And uh, and that is a manager's job is to help them find that. And it may not be that project, but maybe it's a different project. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, we could think of maybe some sports, more specific examples and I could kind of walk you through it. But that at a high level, that's how I think about it. Well, as soon as you write the book on it, come back on the show. We'll promote yeah. the book. Uh, yeah. I think what I liked the most of that, and maybe this will end world part one, is what I feel like the answer I got out of that a little bit is by defining those roles and stuff, we could set better expectations. And yeah. Instead of assuming that people realize, hey, instead of assuming everybody realizes who's adding what part and who's making what decision, and this is not a free-for-all, just defining it up front. Yeah. And that's got to solve so much of it of people knowing like, oh, I get to contribute my idea, but I'm not the decision maker here. That's defined up front. Nobody's offended. They didn't get to make the, the, the decision went against them, right? 100%. I mean, it's driving that clarity. But again, 
that clarity works that kind that style of of um no bs communication just just th- it is what it is like you know if you've got the if you've got the right culture that can works really well if you've got a, a toxic culture then that comes across as as abrasive or bullying but if you've got the right culture then people understand it and that's why you know again i you know i look you know, like we do our weekly all hands now the all hands are on video nowadays but it but it it still works and doing it weekly you know it's 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 with such frequency that people get to see and we you know lots of different people are getting FaceTime on this. It's not just me, right? It's lots of different people, but they're getting to see the transparency. They're getting to know each other a little bit and they're getting to build this, this trust with each other over time. And, and that's really, I mean, that's really the key, the key to it. That's good. Well, uh, maybe to end part one, will you tell us who your ideal customer is so we can send you referrals and uh, where the best place to connect with you guys online is? Yeah. So, you know, right now our, our value proposition is really for, there's an unmet need in the in the ICU in the emergency department for medical imaging MRI imaging diagnostic bedside MRI of the patient rather than transporting that patient to the MRI suite which is really difficult challenging expensive requires hospital staff so you know our ideal customers are those ICU physicians neuroradiologists neurosurgeon neurointensivists who are taking care of patients in the in the ICU or emergency department and and those folks are our clinical internal champions the other ideal customer is the C-suite of these hospitals. You know, one of the challenges with a disruptive technology like ours is you really need the the C-suite to be bought in because that the CEO of the company, CFO, they need to believe in it and and create that belief for the rest of the organization to feel comfortable to adopt it. And so we're trying to drive that message both with the clinical champions that we work with, but also with with the C-suite who who is learning to understand the the ROI to the hospital, the the cost benefit and the ROI to the hospital. That's great. And then we use the website. Yeah, our website is www.hyperfine, H-Y-P-E-R-F-I-N-E dot I-O. Great. Well, everybody, please tune in for part two. Uh, I've got a bunch more questions for Dave. Thanks, everyone.